Okay, hey, turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings 5. Miracles keep coming in chapter 5. Chapter 4, there was five miracles. In chapter 5, there's two more. In this chapter, we have a contrast. <clears throat> you'll, you'll see the contrast between a proud person who eventually comes to know the Lord and versus a man whom we assume knows the Lord but does not act like it. Also, we're going to watch as... One man is cured from leprosy, and another man is cursed with leprosy. First of all, let's look at the man cured from, lep- from leprosy. The man cured from leprosy. That's in the first 19 verses. Now watch, as we look through this, this section, watch how the Lord works in this man's life, and you're going to see that everything that happens is the obvious working of God. Notice, first of all, in the first eight verses, the focus is on God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, that's Syria. Stephen read the passage in the New Testament that quoted Aram as Syria, same place, Aram, Syria. He was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Aramaeans, the Syrians, had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. You know, Naaman, in many ways, is a success story. You see that in the first verse. He attained a position in life that many people would envy. He's the commander of the army, the highest-ranking official in the army of Aram of Syria. He's a general, you might say. He's a man whom the king has great regard for. Man, it says, a great with his master, highly respected. He's a man of high social standing, a man of great importance. The king holds him in high regard. He's a valiant warrior. He knows how to fight. And, of course, what comes along with this position is not only the prestige, but also wealth comes along with this. So he has it all, doesn't he? Or does he? There's one glaring problem in his life, and what is that? He's a leper, right? He has leprosy. Now, the word for leper used here and also Leviticus 13 and 14 I know many of you memorized those two chapters about leprosy, Leviticus 13 and 14. That word can mean all kinds of skin diseases, all types of diseases. The kind of disease you don't want to have is Hansen's disease. That's the one that many got in the, in the Old Testament, New Testament days where it was contagious. It could spread to others. If you had that disease, you have to live apart from other people. Leviticus 13, 46 says, that a leper shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling place shall be outside the camp. That might seem cruel to us, but 
they couldn't, he couldn't spread the disease. I mean, it was just a way of keeping it under control. And it appears, though, as you read these verses, it appears from Naaman's interaction with people, with the army, with the king, with his own wife, in verse 2, that he probably does not have Hansen's disease. It's some kind of other skin disease, also translated leprosy in our Bible here. But it's serious enough, serious enough of a problem that everybody knows he has this. He doesn't want to have this problem. He wants to get rid of this problem. And people are sympathetic with him. So what does all this have to do with the sovereignty of God? Well, look at verse 1. It says, Naaman was a great man with his master and highly respected. Why? Because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. That is where the sovereignty of God is introduced in this section. We will learn here that God is sovereign. He's sovereign, not over, oh, he's sovereign over nations as well as individuals. First, he's sovereign over nations. Verse 1. Now, I have to admit, I'm surprised as I read verse 1. If, I, if, if, if it said here the Lord had given military victory to Israel, I could understand that. I'd get that. I'd, I'd say, yes, of course, Israel is God's chosen nation. The Lord works on their behalf. I get it. But that's not what it says here. It says that he gave victory to Aram. God gave victory to the nation of Aram, or Syria. Now, we don't know who they defeated. It doesn't say. All we know is they were successful, not because they were such great warriors. They may have been. I don't know. But because... The Lord gave them victory. That's the reason. What does that teach us? It teaches us what we saw in Isaiah in Sunday school this morning, that God is sovereign over all the nations, over this pagan nation north of Israel. He's sovereign. You know, we look at this, we look at the world, and we think, the Lord cannot possibly be sovereign over the world, because look at the mess it's in, right? Nations are doing such cruel things, such horrible things, out of control. But we don't know what the Lord knows. You've got to think about that. We don't know what the Lord knows. He may be judging nations for all we know. Because they've totally rejected him outright? I don't know. Only God knows. But the Bible teaches that God is sovereign, no matter how things appear on the surface, how they look to, to us. And the Bible says the Lord has made even the wicked for the day of evil. So he has a purpose in this. Sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over individuals as well, though. Several individuals mentioned here. First of all, Naaman in verse 1. It says it's by him, those those two words, by him, that the Lord gave the victory to Aram. So the Lord is sovereign over nations, but nations are made up of individuals. And the Lord chose to work through Naaman militarily. Yes, he chose to do that. Now, I'm sure Naaman didn't even know this. This is a comment by the biblical writer here. I don't think Naaman knows this is happening, that God is using him to give them victory. But it is the reason why Naaman's so highly respected. Why is he so respected? Because God is granting him the victory, for whatever reason. Other than that, he might have just been another leper. And not only Naaman... Is God sovereign over Naaman? He's sovereign over Naaman's servant. In verse 2, Aramaeans, they take a raid into the land of Israel. Sometimes this happened with nations. They would raid other nations, and they would go in and take some spoils from that. I don't know why, but they go into Israel a little ways, in the Israeli territory, and they take, among other things, a little girl, it says. They take this little girl captive from Israel. Now, we don't know what became of her family, you can imagine this. You go in and this little girl's taken captive. She's probably scared to death, right? You know, wouldn't you be if, if you were in her shoes? And, but we don't know what happened. She's taken from her home but, and taken back to be the servant of Naaman and his wife. But based on her attitude, it looks as she, though she's being treated well. Um, she, oh, because in verse 3, she only desires to see Naaman cured of leprosy. Look at verse 3. 
She says, I wish that my master were with the prophet and who's in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. Appears to me she's being well treated or she wouldn't have these thoughts, right, about him. And so because she has such great confidence that Elisha the prophet, by the way, she's probably indicating that she's also a follower of the Lord because she knows Elisha the prophet. She wants him to be hooked up with Elisha the prophet. She's probably a believer. And so uh, she says this. Now think about this. Of all... We're talking about God's sovereignty. Of all the idol-worshipping people in Israel, there's all these people in Israel that are into idol worship at this time in their history, or many times in their history, at this time in particular. This particular girl is taken. Not somebody else. This particular little girl is taken from her home and placed in the position of a servant right under the nose of Naaman and his wife in their very own home. You know, it reminds me of Joseph, who... You know, his brothers sold him into slavery, and uh, that was the end of it as far as they're concerned, but he ends up in Egypt, right? As he's the instrument of salvation to people in that area, his, his own brothers, when it comes to the famine. God is using him to provide in the famine. And, and Joseph was there by God's sovereign plan, even though difficult in his circumstances, just like this little girl was by God's sovereign plan. She knows of a prophet of God in Israel, who can heal people, who can do miracles. And she doesn't hold back on that information. You see how the Lord is using her in the life of Naaman? This little girl who's totally insignificant, right? Totally insignificant. But had she not said this, he might never have been healed. So it shows us the Lord can use even the most obscure, obscure of people. People that you don't know. It. People You've had people in your life. You don't know who they, you know, they, they were. They were nobody as far as the world were concerned. Maybe God used them in your life to witness to you, to bring you the gospel. Or in some way, they worked in, God worked, had them work in your life. He wants all of us to be involved in his sovereign will, his plan. It means you and me, by the way. Our job is to make ourselves available to him to be used in his sovereign will. You never know how God's going to use you, by the way. You never know. Do his will. You never know in whose life he's going to use you in. So you, you see, he's sovereign. God's sovereign in, this, in the life of this little girl. He's sovereign over the king of Aram. You see verses 4 to 7? Um, this, this little girl, by the way, triggered a chain of events. You see that? The next person God works through is the king. Naaman's wife tells her husband. Her husband tells the king what the little girl had said. And then the king, uh, by the way, remember that the king has great respect for Naaman. And so he says, I'm going to write a letter for you on behalf to the king of Israel, on, on, on behalf of you, so you can uh, be healed and, uh, and he figured probably the king had pro- prophets in his court. Remember Ahab and Jezebel had prophets in there, but they were false prophets, right? But he figures, I'm going to help him out. I'm going to send him a letter of recommendation. So Naaman carries a letter of recommendation with him. He carries a large sum of money with him. It's a lot of money, about 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, not to mention the clothes. I'm not sure what that translates into today's figures. And so he goes with these gifts to the king. However, the king misunderstands the intent of the letter. King of Aram meant that, hey, I'm going to send my, my man over here to you so you know, your prophet can heal him. But he thinks you know, he wants me to heal him. <laughs> and he says in verse 7, am I God? Who does this guy think I am? He's seeking a quarrel with me. Maybe he wants to go to war. Against, maybe he's trying to start a, a fight or something here. I don't know what he's doing. And so all this is taking place. But what I want you to see is that the Lord has brought Naaman's Attention now to the, the king himself, king of Israel. Now the ball's in his court. 
All right, God's sovereign over the king. And then uh, God's sovereign over the prophets, over prophecy in verse 8. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard these things. He says, let him come to me. He'll know there's a prophet in Israel. So the word gets out concerning the reaction of the king uh, of Israel, and Elijah catches wind of it. Now, how do you think that happened? How did Elijah hear about this? It's because God is sovereign over the events. He's sovereign. You see it throughout these several verses. Think through this with me. Aram make, makes a raid on Israel, right? They capture a little servant girl. None of these people know all this is developing, by the way, as, as it's happening. You know, uh, uh, they capture her little signif- insignificant servant girl. Nobody cares about this girl. Uh, she becomes a servant of Naaman's wife. She expresses a desire that her, her master is healed. Naaman's wife tells Naaman. Naaman then tells the king. The king writes a letter to the king of Israel who then expresses total frustration about the whole situation, which then reaches the ear of Elisha, and Elisha says, bring the leper to me. Bring him to me. Now that, my friends, is the sovereignty of God at work in the lives of individuals. We would never be able to pin this down. We couldn't track this if we were trying to in our own lives. Right now you're going through situations that are God is sovereignly orchestrating. You have no idea, right? We have no idea what's going on. Is it safe to say that the Lord has something in store for Naaman? This pagan Syrian guy up north of Israel? It is safe to say that. The Lord sovereignly works through people. We don't see it on the surface. We can't see it. can't see what's happening here. Sometimes we can catch glimpses of it, but we know in the Scripture, as we look in the Scripture, we can see it. We can see that God is sovereign. That's how we learn that God is sovereign. We don't learn it from our own lives, first of all. We learn it, first of all, from the Scripture, right? And then we see the truth, and then we can see, if we look back over our lives, maybe we can see it then. Maybe we can see things developing then. Oftentimes we're ignorant as, what's going, as it's going, taking place. And so the Lord uses the thing that, that Naaman despises, that's leprosy, to ignite this chain of events. We see God's sovereignty in the first eight verses. And then God's healing in verses 9 to 14, God's healing. And now, there's going to be a, a rejection of, uh, first of all, there's going to be a rejection of God's method of healing in verses 9 to 12. And then there's going to be an acceptance of God's method of healing in verses 13 and 14. First of all, the rejection of God's method of healing. Look at verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious. And he went away and said, Behold, I thought... He will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Now remember who this man is, important man. He is not just the next guy on the block. He's the commander of the army of, of Syria. He's a great man. He's highly regarded by the king himself. He's a valiant warrior. He gets his way in life. He's, treated, he's to be treated with respect and dignity. That's how you're to treat this man. So he comes to the residence of Elijah, Elisha with all this pomp and circumstance, befitting one who is a great man. And he pulls up there. He rides in his horses and in his chariots, no doubt among the finest in the land of Aram. And, and, and so he's there to be healed of his leprosy. Can you imagine what the neighbors might have thought, by the way? What, are we being invaded by the Arameans here? What's going on at Elisha's house anyway? All these people are pulling up at his, 
at his doorstep. So being a man of importance, what kind of reception do you think he should get? Does Elisha bow himself down before him and grovel at his feet and say, hey, this is such a great honor that the, the command, I've heard about you. You know, I've heard the, in fact, I've heard the Lord is using you. You're the commander of the army. This is such a great thing that you're here. No, he doesn't even bother going to the door. He doesn't even go there. He says to a messenger, oh, it's, uh, that guy showed up. Well, tell him that to go wash into Jordan seven times and you're, you'll be, your flesh will be restored. You'll be completely healed. Now, if you're in a bus ministry, as I was at one time, you preach this in a bus, right? You, you, we preach sermons in the bus as we were going down the road, by the way. You know, you do the whole thing where you dip down seven times and all that. I'm not going to do that right now. They love that sermon, by the way, the bus kids. But, you know, what do you think the reaction of Naaman will be to this? He's completely insulted. You know, he's, verse 11, he says he's furious. Verse 11, notice the words to me. Look at verse 11, where it says the words to me. But Naaman was furious, went away, said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me. That receives emphasis in Hebrew. I thought he'd come out to me. I'm the man, after all, right? <laughs> I've got, uh, you know, the nerve of this prophet. Does he know who I am? You ever hear anybody say that? Doesn't he know who I am? You know, Elisha has insulted him. Verse 11 shows us something of his expectations of Naaman. This is what Naaman thought was going to happen. He, he pulls up there. He thought Elisha would make a personal appearance, first of all. Well, I'm here, you know. I mean, the prophet should come out to meet me, right? No, he sends a messenger out instead. Then he thought he'll cry out to God in my presence and ask God to heal me. Then he thought that Elisha would wave his hand around somehow and the healing would take place. I thought I was reading this and I thought to myself, it sounds like Naaman has watched too many Benny Hinn revivals, you know. Uh, it's it's, it's kind of like, Today's faith healers, right? This is what they do. I mean, I wonder if they got it from this, this kind of thing. He wants the dramatic. He wants the dramatic healing. But apparently Elisha's not into the dramatic. He's into the plain and ordinary. You know, he doesn't care about all that. He doesn't even come out to meet Naaman. That's for the Jordan River. Are you kidding me? You want me to go wash in the Jordan River? That is a nasty river. It's muddy. It's filthy. It's nasty. It's stinky. Why, back home in Damascus, we have nice, clean rivers like the Abana and the Farpar. Those come from snow-capped mountains. They're nice. They're clean. They're not polluted. They don't, they're not smelly. They're nice. Why not let me wash in one of those rivers? They're nice. Why don't, why don't I get healed in the muddy river of the, of the Jordan? That's disgusting. That's how we often think backwards, right, from what the Lord says. The Lord has a plan. His plan is always different from our plan, right? His ways are always different from our ways. His ideas are different from our ideas. So he says things, and we say, no, we got a better idea, right? For example, he says, except you humble yourselves and become as little children, right? You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, we say, no, we got a better idea. How about we, uh, our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds? I think I can pull this off. Maybe I can pull this off. And he says, no, that's not how we do it. The Lord says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, right? Lean not into your own understanding. All your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. But we have another plan, don't we? We can, we, 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 can, we can figure this thing out, right, on our own. We got it. So we do what we do. You know, we, should, we, we figure this. God should be doing things my way, right? He should be doing it my way. Why does he do things my way? That's the way, the, thing, the way I would do it. Why does he meet up to my standards? Why is he on my timetable? I got a plan here. Doesn't he know what that is? And, uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't work that way. Because he has his own way of working, his own standard of working, his own plan. 
We had the, 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 here's what we got to do. We got to fall in line with his plan. That's the whole problem right there. Okay, we want him to fall in line with our plan. What is the Lord? What, what he wants for us is the same thing he wanted for Naaman. He wants us to follow his instructions, right? <laughs> follow his instructions. His instructions are that we humble ourselves before him instead of demanding our rights. His, his instructions is that we consult his word, that he doesn't consult us, okay? His instructions is that we do it his way, not our way. We do it, you know, Frank Sinatra wanted to do it his way, right? He did it his way. That didn't end up too good, by the way. But God has us doing it his way. We don't have a better idea than he does, by the way. We never do. Never have, a, have a, an idea in, in your head or my head that was better than his idea, ever. So at first, Naaman rejects God's method. And then secondly, there's the acceptance of, of God's method in verses 13 and 14. His servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? Very simple, right? So he went down and dipped himself, sometimes too simple. We don't like that. We want it more complicated, right? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He was clean. Finally, Naaman's servants come and talk some sense into their master. Again, I think that this is an indication Naaman treated his servants well because they call him my father. That's a term of endearment. I don't think they would have called him that had he mistreated them. I think he was good to them at least. And they obviously love him. They're able to reason with him. In fact, he listens to them this time. So he seems to be a reasonable individual when it's all said and done. So he does as Elijah says. Now, why seven times? Why seven? Why do you... <laughs> thinking of the old sermons we used to do back with the kids. Why seven times? You had to go down seven times and do that, by the way, every single time. No, it'd come up the first time, still not clean. Second time, still not clean. All that. Some of you must have been in the bus ministry, apparently. I don't know why seven times. I know what I'm expected to say. I'm expected to say it's a number of completion, right? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, wash seven times, Elisha said, because that's the number of completion. It doesn't say that. I don't know why he did it. I have no idea. That's what it says to do. You know, we don't always have to question everything God says to do, right? Just do it. Nor does this have anything to do with baptism, by the way. Some people might want to pull baptism out of here somehow. Nor does baptism save us, by the way. The bottom line is he was healed of his leprosy. That's it. He does what he's told. He's healed of a leprosy. He's physically healed. He did what the Lord said. He did it the Lord's way, not his way, and the Lord rewarded him. So we've seen God's sovereignty in his life. We've seen God's healing in his life. Thirdly, God's salvation. Verses 15 and 19, God's salvation. Look at verse 15. <clears throat> when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Remen to worship there. And as he leans on my hand... And I bow myself in the house of Remen. When I bow myself in the house of Remen, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. Now we've been talking about the providence of God, the sovereignty of God in the life of Naaman. 
And here's another strong evidence of it, very the strongest one I, of all, I think. Naaman gets, he gets more than he bargained for, and he's going to be eternally grateful for it. After he is healed, he and his entourage pull up Elisha's driveway again, okay? This time, Elisha goes out to meet him. He's there to meet him. And then something totally unexpected happens. Naaman the Syrian, Naaman the Aramean, makes a confession of faith in Yahweh, the Lord God. Very definite, clear confession of faith. By the way, the ultimate purpose of miracles in the Bible is to prove that the Lord is God, to show that, to glorify him, he's all-powerful. And that should, by the way, when Christ was here, that should have caused people to worship and glorify him when he did miracles, right? But due to their hardness of heart, people don't worship God, even when they see miracles. John said of Jesus in John 12, 37, but though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, <clears throat> yet they were not believing in him. It didn't matter. They performed all these works. Jesus said in John, uh, I'm, I, the works testify of me to show that I'm from God, right? Nevertheless, many didn't believe in him. <clears throat> and then Stephen read the passage in Luke 4, and it shows the resistance of Israel. It says there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. Many lepers, think about this, many lepers in Israel, the land of Israel, many lepers. And none of them was cleansed, but one, only Naaman the Syrian, a foreigner at that. Only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people, it says in Luke 4, all the people in the synagogue, when they were, were filled with rage when Jesus was saying these things, uh, because as they heard these things, they wanted to throw him off a cliff, it says, but he escapes their notice. Now, all their, all their words, all the words of Jesus, all the works of Jesus did not matter to many people. Same is true today, by the way. They were so infuriated that he would dare say, oh, yeah, Elisha was sent to a, a Gentile, not the Israelites. But the same is true today. But nevertheless, he's not only physically healed, he is spiritually healed, and he, and he knows this is of God. Uh, and, it, it, you know, he grows up in, a, in, in this world of idols, and, and now he comes to realize, who could have done this but God? Who could have healed him but God? Only a God that's real, only a God that's genuine could have healed him. You know, it's actually a good thing Elisha wasn't there waving his hand over him and all that, the Benny Hinn style. It's probably a good thing that didn't happen because he knows this is not Elisha. This is the method chosen in this muddy, nasty river I didn't, that he didn't even want to go into is of God, right? This is the work of God. He confesses very plainly. Behold, now I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. That is where the true God had been worshipped, but not in, not in Aram or, or Syria, not there at all. They worship Remen and false gods. So Naaman's grateful, and he wants to show his gratitude, and he says, hey, take a gift. I got you know, money here, and Elisha says, no, I don't want your money. I don't want your gifts. That's not what this is about. You know, can you imagine preachers today refusing money, by the way? No, we can't, right? <laughs> We can't imagine that. But he refused it. He wasn't interested in all that. He only wanted to do what God wanted him to do. Now, does Naaman really mean what he says here? When he says, I, this is the only, I profess to know God now. Does he really mean that? We, we're used to seeing people who say this all the time, right? They don't really mean it. We know it. Well, let's, let's look at verse 17. Naaman said, if not, please let your uh, servant at least be given two mules a load of earth. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but only to the Lord, he says. He says, I'm only going to offer God's sacrifice from now on, not a, foreign, not a uh, false god. Now, why does he ask for some dirt from Israel? Seems strange request. Does he have some affinity for the soil of Israel, even though the waters, the rivers weren't all that great? 
Does he want it for gardening purposes? What does he want? What does he want here? No, it's to build an altar. He wants some of the dirt from Israel to build an altar in his own country to worship God on because people back then thought that the God of a nation had to be worshipped on their own soil. And he thinks that. Now, we know that's not necessary, right? But understand, Naaman's what? He's a new believer. He doesn't know all this theology. He doesn't know everything. He's a, he, doesn't know, he doesn't know about the sovereignty of God, maybe even yet. I don't know. He doesn't understand all this, but his words show his dedication to worship the Lord, the Lord alone. There's no doubt about it. Verses 18 and 19 give further evidence that of his conversion. Although you might think he's caved, you might think he's already compromised. You look at verse 18. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leans on my hand, and I bow down. Uh, forgive me for this thing. Forgive me for this thing. And Elisha says, go in peace. Go in shalom. Now, don't freak out, okay, because he said this. Don't freak out. Elijah, is Elijah freaking out about it? No, he's not. He says, go in peace, right? The house of Remen is where the king of Aram worships at. He worships, he worships a false god there. And when he goes into that place, the, 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 the uh, Naaman, the highly regarded Naaman by the king, is expected to escort him in there. That's his job. He's expected to go with him and bow down with him in there. And he, uh, when he says he leans on my hand, either he means he's offering the king some kind of physical support when maybe he bows down, I don't know if the king's older or what, what the situation is, or he's saying he's my right-hand man. I don't go anywhere without Naaman. He is my right-hand man. At any rate, Naaman is asking in, in forgiveness in advance of when he does, has to do this. He knows he's got to do this. He's saying, forgive your servant when I have to do this. Part of the job, right? <laughs> now, we could rip him for compromising here, okay? But think about this for a minute. First of all, notice how humble uh, Naaman has become. He was furious prior to the healing. Now four times it says in these verses, your servant, I'm your servant, Elisha. I'm your servant, I'm your servant. Keep saying that. Humble. He's been humbled by God. And then he says he won't pers- personally worship God, uh, anybody but God the Lord. He makes that statement too, right? And then that's at the end of verse 17. And then he shows his newfound faith again by discerning this spiritual dilemma ahead of time. He thinks about this. Now, how many new believers would even think about this? They would not think about this. He does. He's got discernment. Why even mention it to Elisha? He didn't even have to. Elisha wouldn't even know it anyway, maybe. Maybe he would know. I don't know. He mentions it to him. I'm worried about this. This is a concern I have. I don't want to do this, but I'm, it's kind of part of my job description. I've got to do this unless he wants to defy the king. So he finds himself between a rock and a hard place, okay? It's his job, and he's, he's doing it. The real question is, if you're still wondering, what does Elisha, the man of God, think about it? What does he think about this? Well, what does it say? What does he say in verse 19? Go in peace. Shalom, brother. See ya. That's what he says. Is he affirming compromise? No, Elisha's not a compromiser. He's simply realizing the reality of the situation that Naaman finds himself in. Nor is this a chapter and verse to base compromise on, by the way. Don't say, oh, I can compromise because not what it's saying either. Elisha knows Naaman is in a unique situation in a foreign country by himself, probably the only believer over there. It's all very unique, right? By the way, does this remind us of Obadiah, who was a man uh, who feared God, who was a servant, the employee of Ahab the king, top-ranking official to Ahab, who had to walk a fine line sometimes with the things he had to deal with. And there's some, sometimes in the Bible you see other things, but in this situation, I'm content with Elisha's answer. Elisha's the man of God, and he says, what do I do about this? And Elisha says, go in peace. 
go in peace. <clears throat> now, if you're not happy with that answer, and I know some people that wouldn't be, take it up with Elijah when you get to heaven and ask him, okay? That's what it says. Now, instead of troubling yourself about that, I would focus on the great confession of Naaman, who declares there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. That's an amazing thing. <clears throat> you know, the Lord has elect in every nation. He has elect in every nation, even the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he saved Rahab and Ruth, and I believe Naaman and others. Naaman gets a double blessing. He's cured physically. He's cured spiritually. But there is a contrast that, that is presented in this chapter. <clears throat> Secondly, the man cursed with leprosy, verses 20 to 27. We have the man cured from leprosy, Naaman. Now the man cursed with leprosy, verses 20 to 27. We're talking about Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. Gehazi, obviously not on the same page with his master. Look at verse 20. Notice his greed in verse 20. But Gehazi, uh, it says in verse 19 that uh, Naaman departed from him some distance. Verse 20, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought... Behold, my master has spared his name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. He saw all that money. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. I'm going to take something from him. What's he doing letting this guy get away scot-free? He just healed him. Get your money at least, right? Look at verse 16. Elisha says, the Lord lives before whom I stand. I will take nothing. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> Gehazi says, as the Lord lives... I will run after him and take something from him. Now, both of them swore by the name of the Lord, right? <clears throat> but Elisha is, is fully committed to God. We know that. And quite frankly, Gehazi is taking God's name in vain. As his actions will prove, he's totally selfish. He wants his, he wants his selfish, uh, you know, he wants materialism. He's motivated by materialism. Whereas Elisha is motivated by his desire to please God, he, and another thing, Gehazi fails to see the, the spiritual transformation that has taken place in the life of the Syrian, Naaman, right? He doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. He can only think about the material wealth he sees that, that Elisha stupidly turned down. You know, how could you do this? You know, greed and covetousness blind us to what the Lord's doing. It blinds us to what, what he's doing. We can be so focused on what we want, what we want. We can't see the spiritual needs of those around us. Because our goal is what? What we want, right? We want something, and and we forget about what God's doing. We don't see God working. We're not available to him. We don't care about what he's doing. None of that, because why? We want what we want, right? And it's blindness to everything else. Gehazi clearly did not care about Naaman's soul. (laughs) Naaman just said, hey, I'm confessing God. Gehazi says, I want your money. That's where his focus was the whole time. He says, I'm going to run after him and take something from him. He's a giver, right? Not a taker. He's a taker, rather, not a giver. By the way, we should be givers, not takers. Christians should be givers and not takers. You know, God didn't put us on this planet to gain the whole world and lose our own soul. That's not why we're here. Paul said in t- to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, flee from the love of money, right? And pursue what? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness, these things. Pursue these things. This is what the Lord wants. So, Gehazi is greedy. <clears throat> Notice his lies, secondly, his lies. Look at verse 21 to 24. <clears throat> 21, so Gehazi pursued Naaman. And, you know, you're going to pursue what you want, right? Pursued Naaman. Uh, when Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold now, just, behold just now two young men of the sons of the prophets. You know, Elisha's always dealing with the sons of the prophets, right? Right? 
two men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. This is a great story he's spending here. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, be pleased to take two talents. And he urged them and bound two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house and he sent them in away and they departed. Now, this is a complete lie. He lies about the prophets. All of it a made up story. And a lot of details, right? He, he had to think this one through like, and make it sound realistic and all this. And he does. He even says, Elisha told me to tell you this. He lies about his own master, the prophet Elisha of all things, right? And uh, what's he doing? He's profiting off religion, like many today do, right? Profiting off religion. He feels like his master missed a golden opportunity. He's not going to miss it. He's not that dumb. My mama didn't raise a dummy, right? And he's going to be, he's going to get his, his portion. But his greed leads him to lying. And that's not the only person he lied to. He lies to uh, he lied about his journey. Look at verse 25. <clears throat> but when he went in and stood before his master, Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Well, it sounds like uh, God talking to Adam and Eden in the garden. Uh, you know, what, you know, what, you know what, what are you guys doing here? And they had sinned, and they, didn't, they were guilty about it. Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. You didn't go anywhere, huh? Obviously, it's just a total lie. He not only lies to the name and the foreigner, he lies to his own master. You know, one lie begets another, right? You've got to cover your tracks. You've got to keep coming up with another story. It's a downward spiral from there. So he's full of greed. He's lying. And then notice his punishment in verse 26. <clears throat> then Elisha said to him, Did not my heart go with you? Listen to this. When the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Did not my heart go with you when the man? That's, that's the name Turn from his chariot to meet you. Is it a time to receive money, to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. You know, Elisha must have been brokenhearted by all this. He says, didn't my heart go with you? And I, I God revealed all this to me. I think I'm, I'm a prophet. I'm your, you know this. You know how things operate with me. You're my servant, right? What were you thinking? What were you thinking, Gehazi? Why did you do this? You know, we often think we can get away with sin, right? And the Lord, Lord sees and knows all things. It, it looks as though also Gehazi had a bigger dream in life. He had dreams of grandeur, right? Dreams of, by the way, I don't know what the, 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 the money is, what it totals to. I've read some people have said it's a lot of money, even enough to fund his retirement. And his retirement of his descendants, others haven't commented on it at all. I'm not totally sure. If, if that's what it was, wow, he scored big on this money end of it, right? But Elisha says, more than that, apparently you have big dreams. He says, it's the time to receive money and clothes. Wait a minute, what about animals, he says? And land and servants, all things that show that a person is wealthy in, in, that, in that day. Was he saying this? It looks like Gehazi had big dreams of being rich, and Elisha knew it. You're trying to be rich? You love, you love money? Love of money is, you know, root of all kinds of evil. He was not content to, set, to live this simple, unadorned, non-materialistic life that Elisha favored. He wasn't content with that. He wanted to live in style, right? He wanted to move up to the east side. He had his interest on the things of men, not on the things of God, as, as uh, Jesus said to Peter, right? It's strange, you know, you can be in a privileged position, 
in life as a believer. You can be under the greatest disciple maker on the planet at the time, Elisha, right? Right under his nose, his own servant. <clears throat> and yet, and watching all that happens, watching all the miracles, all, knowing about all these things, and yet you, can, you still have to deal with yourself, the things that drag you down, right? You still have to put sin to death. Gehazi had the rare privilege of being in close relationship with one of the greatest prophets that ever lived, and yet he had to deal with his own greed. His own greed overtook him in light of all that. You can hear the word expounded week in and week out. You can come to this church week in and week out. You can go to all the Bible studies we have and yet fall prey to all your sinful desires anyway. That's true of all of us. We must apply uh, what we learn by the Spirit of God. Application. So Gehazi is cursed with leprosy as well as his descendants. You say, well, is this, is this so serious that this had to happen? Well, I guess so, based on the severity of the punishment. Apparently it was serious to God, okay? And Elisha. You know, Achan probably thought what he did when he stole the, the things that were under the ban by God in Joshua 6, not all that serious. But God thought it was serious, right? And uh, Ananias and Sapphira apparently thought that, you know, giving money to the church but not telling him, kind of lying about how much they gave. Apparently they didn't think that was a big deal, but God thought it was a big deal. You know, uh, and, and here the same with Gehazi. Here's a safe rule to follow, by the way. Whenever you or, you or I sin against the Lord and whenever we break his word, it's a big deal. How about that? We just follow that guideline. It's a big deal. Maybe that guideline will help us in life. One man is cured from leprosy. Another is cursed with leprosy. <clears throat> you know, God is gracious to sinners across the world, the worst of sinners, chief of sinners. All of us are sinners. He's gracious to his people also. But he will not tolerate those who persist in sin deliberately. He won't tolerate that. He's a God of grace. As Mike said this morning, he's also a God of what? Of holiness, right? That is what we heard this morning. I hope we were listening to that. And, if we, and, and that's what I'm going to leave you with tonight. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 again. We'll leave you with this. 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16. 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 16. which says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we are grateful again for your word, what we can learn from it. We pray that we will learn from it. Oftentimes, Lord, we hear it again and again. We read it, and we still don't learn from it. We pray you'll pound it into our heads. Help us to understand, Lord, that we're here uh, to please you. We're not here for ourselves. And we're here to serve you and not serve ourselves. We're here to glorify you and not ourselves. And we pray that you would be glorified in our lives this week. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.